The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, put down the bug spray and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 354 with guests Don Belcham and Kyle Bailey, recorded live Monday, June 23rd, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who can't understand why nobody came to his earthworm breeding party, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's your Thursday show. Richard Campbell and I are here for your .NET listening pleasure. Hey, Richard, what's up, man? Ah, last show of June. I can't complain about that. Yeah. Half a compl- year gone. It has been so nice out here in New London. I had... You know, there's this great um, seafood place in uh, New London called Captain Scott's. I, you took me there. Yeah, it's right on the water. You got a marina on one side. It's like a little peninsula. You got a marina on one side. You got the and the train tracks with a swinging bridge on the other. You know, it's the smell of the sea. You know, seagulls flying around, boats, and chowder, and chowder, and lobster. It's just a great place to go on a nice day. So I go there today. Uh, my friend Arthur, you remember Arthur who I sucked the Arthur. eyeballs out of the pig when my forty? Right, yeah, birth? yeah, and, and felt guilty about it because he took them both. He goes, "Hey, Carl, what's this?" I turn around. <laughs> He's got a pig's eyeball. He's eating the pig. Ah, just disgusting. <laughs> I'm like, dude, why did you do that? He's like, "It's good." No, what? It's good. He calls me up today. He says, hey, I want to have lunch at Captain Scott's. I'll meet you there at 1. So it was a beautiful day, right? He's like 10 minutes late. All of a sudden, the sky opens up. It just dumps water on us, right? Nice. 
So right as we're walking back to the tables with our food, so I had soggy fish and chips for lunch today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do suffer so. Oh, well, you know, the weather in New, in New England, I think it was Mark Twain who said, if you don't like the weather in New England, just wait a minute. Nice. It'll change. All right. Let's get into Better Know Framework. Okay, man. Hit me. All right. Well, today I'm going to talk about um, something that we have talked about a little bit on the show before, but I know people are fuzzy on, which is the predicate, the predicate of T generic delegate. Oh, okay. A predicate, uh, here's what it says. It represents the method that defines a set of criteria and determines whether the the specified object meets those criteria. So what it basically is, is if you think about writing a function that accepts one parameter and returns a Boolean. In that function, you're going to look at that parameter. You're going to look at that object, whatever it is. doesn't matter what it is. That's what the generic T is for, right? Right. Whatever that object is, if it's a string or an array or whatever, you're going to look at that object and do something. You're going to see if it matches a criteria. You're going to see if it has over 10 customers. You're going to see if it is a... Uh, you know, a list with so many items in it. Um, if it's a string that ends with something, right? You're going to do something. You're going to do something. And you can pass that, uh, the address of that method, to certain functions in the framework that use it internally to do, to do something. And right. a really good example of this is the array class, which has all these find methods. Find first, find all. Uh, and you basically pass the uh, the array to it, array.find, you pass the array, and the second one, you pass the address of this predicate, that you, uh, which is the function you've written. Right. So let's say you want to find, uh, let's say you have an array of strings, and you want to find all of them that end with ing. Okay? They're, let's say they're words that end in ing. And maybe right. there's 100 strings and some random number end in ing. So your predicate is going to look through the string that's passed in and check to see if it ends in ing. And if it does, you're returning true. And if it doesn't, you're returning false. So array.find is going to use that. And it's going to go through and loop through all of the items in the array. But you are the one who decides whether it matches the criteria or not. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Generic predicate of T. Know it, love it, use it. Use it. Use it wisely. Don't hurt anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what are they saying about us today, Richard? Oh, I picked you out a nice one. Uh, Actually, a very special show, one that was special to me. Hi, Carl and Richard. I would just like to send you a quick congrats and thanks for show number 350 with Dan Appleman and Kathleen Dollard. That was cool. My wife and I were headed off on the weekend for a road trip, so I downloaded the show on Friday afternoon, and we listened to it in the car while we drove for three hours in traffic. The show certainly made the trip much more enjoyable. In Australia, we have recently had a change of federal government, and one of the new campaign promises was an IT revolution, in which the main new initiative is a free laptop for every student, and the use of these laptops during classes. My wife works as a high school science teacher here in Sydney, Australia, and hundreds of new laptops are arriving at her school in a few weeks, and therefore, show 350 was certainly very timely and very helpful. Wow. 
Therefore, I just wanted to share with you that Show 350 was almost certainly a hit with a wider audience, as I imagine many other developers shared it with their respective partners in the same way that I did. Thanks again. Ryan Walker from Sydney, Australia. P.S. My wife has had to endure so many conversations, generally initiated by me beginning with, I heard on DNR that, (laughs) that I no longer need to explain what DNR is short for or who Carl and Richard are. My wife asked me if she is now officially a geek, having listened to a full one-hour DNR podcast, and I replied, no, it's not that easy. <laughs> That's good. Awesome. Hilarious. <laughs> and uh, kudos to the Australian government. I mean, I'm, I'm very fascinated to see what can be done to start using technology and t- as the teaching vehicle rather than teaching about technology. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you see this in, in colleges a lot. And the college students are now getting a laptop. Sure. They figure, hey, you know, they're paying so much money, we ought to take a little bit of that and spend it on some real tools, right? So, but, uh, but it's great to see that in the broader, in the broader area of education. Well, um, Richard, you know that the uh, Infusion guys, Greg Brill down there in New York City, is still looking for some more .NET developers. They've hired away 13 or 14 of our listeners, uh, flew them to New York, moved them to New York City. They're paying for your apartment for a year, working on really exciting things. Can you imagine living in, in Manhattan rent-free for a year? And then, on top of that, you don't have to buy gas. It's like, hey, let the gas prices go up. I don't care. I'm walking. You won't care. I'm walking. yeah taking the subway much cheaper have an adventure yeah if you're interested in the ultimate developer adventure take a look at the details at uh, on my blog at shrinkster.com slash kh6 okay well our guests today are donald belcham and kyle belay and uh, let me read their bios here. Donald is an independent contractor in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, who specializes in software development with a .NET platform. With more than seven years' experience delivering web and smart client applications to government and Fortune 100 clients in North America and the South Pacific, he has experience and knowledge in the entire software development lifecycle. Combining that experience with his passion for agile development practices and solid object-oriented fundamentals, Donald works to provide the client with software that works for their businesses. He's been recognized by Microsoft for his technical skill and community contribution with the Microsoft MVP Award in C Sharp. Donald is a notable leader in the developer community. In addition to being a founding member and current president of the Edmonton.NET Users Group, Donald regularly speaks for .NET user groups, code camps, and conferences around the world on topics ranging from development practices to the intricacies of different technologies. Uh, Kyle Belay is an independent consultant of 10 years' experience, most of which is in the Microsoft world. He's developed web and smart client applications for companies of all sizes in a variety of industries, adding a little more to his knowledge base with every project. Kyle currently makes his home base in the Bahamas, lucky guy, waiting patiently for the day when wireless Internet access reaches to the beaches of the Caribbean Sea. Until then, he uses his experience as a speaker at user groups and developer conferences to preside over the Bahamas.net user group, the first of its kind in the country. And Richard, let's go there. You want to do that one? Let's go talk to Kyle's group. Yeah, Kyle, do you have any code camps? Maybe we could come up for a code camp. I'm just saying. You know, I I haven't had a whole lot of interest in in speakers coming down to the code camp. (laughs) None at all, huh? Really? (laughs) That's a shame. I think you lie. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, a little bit. We're we're gonna have more speakers than attendees, I think. Yeah, Kyle, wow. uh, you're originally a Canadian, right? Oh, I'm very much Canadian. Okay, so you're doing the non-resident Canadian thing. Yeah, I've been down there about five years now. Oh, okay, so you are now a non-resident. What does that mean, yeah. the non-resident Canadian thing? Is it like an expat in America? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Canadians are taxed based on residency, not citizenship. And I shall say no more for fear of... Imp- uh, fear of... Uh, the rules are arduous and complex, and I, I spent many years working in various tax haven countries uh, while remaining a resident Canadian, working with all sorts of expats and the challenges of the lifestyle therein. So, Igloo Coder, Donald. Yeah, that's uh, kind of the handle that I go by and my blog name and my company name and all that stuff. Is that just because of the, the reference to the the North? Yeah, it kind of came out of the fact that I like living in the north, and uh, I certainly enjoy writing code, so I just kind of blended the two together. Well, in Edmonton is a really northern city, far more than almost any other Canadian city. It's the largest city uh, in the northern part of the country, yeah, by far. So we've we've got really nice long summer days right now. So where we have rats, you have moose, right? Yeah, we definitely have moose. Not right in town here, but you don't have to go very far to see them. Yeah, I'm thinking about, I'd be like Joel Fleshman up there, you know, from Northern Exposure. Yeah. <laughs> Get this moose out of my kitchen! <laughs> I've never had one in the kitchen, but we've had them in uh, my parents' garage. You wake up in the morning and swing the door open and there's three moose sleeping in the garage, so... You know, I had remembered a story where somebody hit a moose in a car in Canada, and and that's a that's a nasty sight. I mean, they really not only does the moose like get hurt, but uh, they ruin your car. Well, they're so high up in the body that you just take the legs out from under them, right. and they'll end up going right through the windshield right through of the a windshield. small car. And it's pretty pretty rare that people survive them without any scrapes or being killed well my friend did survive and he said the last thing he remembers is the moose running away with a luggage rack on his antlers <laughs> awesome oh man so they you guys have a new book you've been collaborating on uh, brownfield application development yeah it's uh, brownfield application development in net so i always thought the brownfield was what came out of the uh, area around the septic tank Oh, man. Is it going to be one of those kinds of shows, Richard? Well, you know, let's just... The funny part, of course, is didn't it, uh, didn't isn't the line, the grass is always greener over the septic tank? Right. So, brownfield and the alternative is greenfield, right? Be, let's just define brownfield right up front. So, brownfield, the term actually, I, I kind of picked it up from uh, the fact that we do have a greenfield definition out there for software development that's pretty good. And then there's the term legacy that's pretty common as well. And they have very, very differing connotations. But there's also projects that I felt kind of fell in between. So I um, played around with the idea of what is in between them for a bit. And I, I thought of brownfield as a term. It's not greenfield. It's not legacy. But what did it mean um, became the next challenge. And the first place you always go to figure that out is Wikipedia. And brownfield on Wikipedia is defined at that point in time, it was defined as an industrial commercial site that was contaminated by hazardous waste. Nice. And uh, could be cleaned up and reused, possibly. Huh. So I just took the definition, plugged in software development terms, 
and came up with uh, a decent definition of a project or code base that was previously created, maybe contaminated by poor practices, structure, and design, but has the potential to be revived. So you're not thinking in terms of this is written in an old language or an old environment and you're migrating it up? That's more legacy? It's Yeah, the, one of the big differences between legacy and brownfield for us is the, uh, the, the fact that technology in brownfield doesn't have to be old. Right. It may be only one version old. It may be brand new even. You know, a .NET 3.5 project that has kind of fallen off the tracks a little bit might fully qualify as a brownfield project already. So do you generally see that brownfield projects are distressed in some way? Like the, the team is now gone, maybe it did it as a remote project and those guys are gone for some reason, you're sort of left with some code that maybe kind of works and you don't know what to do next? I, I think there's a couple of uh, scenarios there that fall into brownfield. And one is what you just said. You're, you're coming onto a project or you're already on a project and most of the team has departed for various reasons. Uh, or there's also a project where the team is still there, but you're being brought in possibly to help revive it or maybe even just to fill a seat because only one person out of the project team has left. Okay. Donald, I think you're describing 90% of the software development projects out there. Don't you think? I, exactly what we were thinking. It's, there's way more projects like this than there are Greenfield. There's no right. doubt about that. Yeah. Greenfield is a luxury. And when you get to start over, it's just never like that. Or build something and, brand new. Right. And Greenfield doesn't stay Greenfield for very long, in my experience. Yeah, after, after version one, it's brown. Yeah, well, even before version one, it turns brown, I find. You know, you, your team lets up for a couple weeks, and some bad coding practices start slipping in, and maybe a bad decision here and there as well around architecture or something like that, and you're all of a sudden in a brownfield world, and you still haven't released to production yet. Yeah, I found that... Um one of the, the the themes that people seem to uh, cling on to is the idea of the morale of the um, the people in the project, not just the development team, but the client, the QA, um, the project manager. Um, one of the things that you'll find on a brownfield application is that the morale of these various people will will be pretty low. You know. Yeah, I think that's perfectly normal reaction because we're really only happiest when we're creating, you know, and come in, and we're the ones that are inventing. We're, we're, you know, we, it's our ideas that are going in there. Whereas now we're working around other people's ideas. I think it's pretty. Yeah, and reaction. you're also trying to. Um, a lot of people recognize that the the code could be better. We should be doing things differently, or we're just coding to a deadline, and they'll have sort of a feeling of helplessness to it. So we're we're trying to address that. Um, how can you work with, um, say, a client who's lost all um, faith in the development team and in their ability to deliver, right. for example? Right. And then you actually have to go interact with them. Yeah, this sounds like you're a brownfield the moment you missed your first set of deadlines and everybody's disheartened. I think that's one way you could define it. Um, I, I don't know if, if missing the deadline necessarily is a requirement, but it's certainly... Uh, plays into it, I think. It's certainly a side effect of, of it being a brownfield. Um, it's kind of, it falls into the the area of customer expectations, right? Um, you know, we have a notoriously bad track record when it comes to uh, setting uh, deadlines and expectations of it, and we all have this idea of how we want the software to look, and, and as soon as it starts veering off that path, 
um, then you know a whole bunch of dominoes fall down, and you're you end up with a brownfield application. Don't you also think that um, when you when you first approach a brownfield application, that whole period of just trying to understand what is going on in this in this code and in this application, you know, you generally there. I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience is here's the code, figure it out. I mean, there's no there's no charts, there's no diagrams, there's no big picture. Maybe sometimes you got to go talk to people who have been ostracized or outside the company at, at a different place. It's that's a difficult process, I think, for everybody. Yeah, and there's there are a lot of different things that uh, you can do there, and our natural inclination is to dive into the code and try to figure out what goes on. And um, both Donald and I have have uh, have done uh, talks on this at code camps and, and conferences, and we we find that the natural inclination in this case isn't always the best one. Um, you want to get a sense of the code for sure, but then it's very easy to get sucked up into the details and get sucked into what made the, the code the brownfield to begin with rather than looking higher level. And and just not to put that all brownfields are bad, I I just sort of had a, rem- a memory of a project where, then uh, this is years ago, so I don't even want to talk about the language it was in, but they hired a group of guys, they built a program, the program worked great, and so, you know, the guys went on their merry way, and a year or two later, uh, the tax rules changed, and now they needed to have some coding changes done to, to deal with the new tax rules, and I got the project, and so, I, I mean, it was definitely a brownfield, but nobody was unhappy. It just was an existing application that had to be tackled for a, a, a new version. I think uh, that that is the case uh, quite often. I, I worked on a little project I have for myself this morning, and I haven't touched it for a couple months, and it felt brownfield to me. I mean, the code, yeah, it's not perfect, but nobody's disappointed with the way it's working. It's It's fully functional, but it was missing little things that we consider to be necessary for doing good um, software development as well. So I didn't have automated build scripts. I didn't have an automated deployment uh, or release package creating or anything like that. Um, the code is fine. It's workable. You know, I'm, I'm in there to add one little feature. I'm not touching anything else, but there's all these other little things that make it a bit brownfield. You want to spend a, a little refactoring time with that code. Yeah, exactly. So you only know, spend a few hours building an automated build script for it and, uh, and now you're just one step closer to being into a good practices and comfortable with what's going on again. Well, I think you hit on a key thing here, Don, which is it's not, I had just the source code. I did not have the old development environment. I didn't have the source management tools or anything. I just had source code. So this idea of now you need to do all of that. Yeah, setting up the uh, development ecosystem is uh, something that you end up finding a lot on a brownfield project. You know, that maybe there isn't source control whatsoever. There's just the latest version of the code, or worse yet, just the compiled assemblies that you have to decompile. Um, there, there might be no, uh, no automated testing. There might be no build script. You might have to figure out how to compile the application and deploy it from scratch again. Um, the whole ecosystem is really the first thing that Kyle and I are writing about solving when you go into a brownfield project. Look through all these different points and see if they're needed or uh, unavailable or partially available in a poor state or available in a good state and figure out where to fill the holes in. Well, that sounds like a very valuable resource. I, I've never seen anything like that book-wise or resource-wise. 
We should yeah, get we're in. Uh, se- seven chapters in, and and we haven't even uh, talked about code uh, yet. That's it's all setting up the ecosystem. Yeah, I got to think. Goal number one coming into a project like this is: can you compile the existing app? Yeah, that's part of the um, one of the goals you want to have is as a brand new developer or even an existing developer, can you get the absolute latest version of the code at any time on a brand new machine and start working? Can you go? Can you get a sense of um, are the unit tests passing? Does does it compile? Um, are you able to release it um, at a moment's notice? Things like that. You know, that's that requires a lot of work. And when you're just diving straight into the code um, or, you know, fixing a bug or, or working on a feature your first day, uh, you, you don't get that high-level view of it. Well, and it's got, yeah, if you went pounding off into the code then found out sometime later, you weren't working on the current version of the code. That would really suck. Yeah. It does suck. I've been there before. <laughs> I, I, I figured from the silence a- at that moment was all of us going, oh, yeah, that sucked. Uh, trying to figure out which project we could say it sucked on or not. Uh. <laughs> there's, there's a guy I was talking to this about, and, and he was telling me um, when he first started on a project, you know, he's talking with the the project manager on the phone and said uh, stuff like, I'm really excited to be on the project. Uh, how can I get access to the source uh, source code? And project manager says, oh, hold on. And all of a sudden, ding, you've got mail. Wow. <laughs> Came over as a zip nice. file. Okay, you, and you, and you know, and you swear that guy thought he was doing a good thing. Here, I'll send it to you. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that you find in these projects where it's not quite uh, up to the standard that you may want or expect is not being done out of malicious intent. No, it's just people maybe not understanding options available or the problems that they're introducing by based on the choices they've made in the past, things like that. So it's. It just happens, and everyone thinks, oh, it's okay, and away you go. And then it takes a fresh set of eyes coming into the project to point out why it may or may not be uh, what you want to continue doing. Yeah, it's a sense that they, they haven't been burned before um, by the problems that other people have. So it's, it's kind of what we're trying to do is wrap up a, um, a bunch of experiences from people that have, have been burned before so that you don't make the same mistakes. What are some of those mistakes? Let's get into that. Some of the mistakes with respect to some of the mistakes that people typically make when they when they try to um, pick up a brownfield application. And we've talked about some of them, right? I mean, I got to yeah, think we've... source code first and foremost. How are we managing source code? Source code's a really really good one that people um, maybe don't fully understand. You know, they're they're using a product that or no product at all, and not getting the features that they need based on the workflow and project constraints that they're on. So, um, you know, they may have this need to be able to do development branching to release bugs while we're continuing ongoing uh, feature adding, but the source control system they're using doesn't support that. So, so they're flailing around uh, trying to make uh, something work in a kind of a hack-together method and really trying their best to keep the project on its tracks, but they're spending a lot of energy in unnecessary places if they only changed the tools or techniques they were using. And this is, for me, a real classic. I've run into lots of projects where everything was fine until they shipped version 1, and they didn't know how to fix bugs in version 1 while also working on version 2. Yeah, how about just the security issue of who has access to the code 
Do you have to add this person to a group? Is it usually administrators when people come and go? The larger problem there is um, the idea of, uh, of friction with your ecosystem, which is a topic we talk about a lot uh, in the book, is how long are you spending doing stuff that isn't code-related? You know, if you're spending a lot of time adding users to source control or you have to do a lot of work to get branching to work or, you know, a topic after my own heart, if if it takes you a good five minutes to load up an application because it doesn't work very well in a remote scenario, um, then you should be thinking about how much time you're wasting there. How much time are your developers spending not doing what they're paid to do? finding workarounds to these little idiosyncrasies. Richard has a Richard always talks about thrashing as being a huge problem. I think that's what you're bumping up against here. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's um, more of a development related analogy is when you're working through a particularly tough development problem and you can't see the solution if if uh, my definition matches yeah, I would so, tend yeah, to agree that right. thrashing is a coder's problem where we get stuck on trying how to solve the problem and we lose sight of yeah, that. We, we spent too yeah. long on this. We should go a different way. And and that's something that we're going to be um, discussing in the in the latter part where we do talk about the um, the code aspect of it. But I do find it fascinating that I mean I think maybe almost a human thing that we tend we we're as programmers we're so keen to write code we ignore the amount of energy we put into just getting to the point of being able to write code this we don't put enough cycles into making the things we have to do every day really efficient like checking in and out code and getting into your working environment and getting your project up and running. Like if that is an hour or two hour long threshold just to get started, it's a lot of wasted time. Time and energy that uh, is unnecessary is the thing. And I always fall back to the view of does the client really want to be paying the project to do this? And usually they don't. They would rather see, you know, the business feature being uh, implemented correctly or even incorrectly rather than you sitting around flailing trying to get a computer that you can log into. Right. And yet the customer is yelling at you because you're busy tweaking the the source control system and the project configuration instead of writing code. It is a catch-22. I think um, you have to be really careful uh, with how much uh, time you spend tweaking and when you spend that time tweaking so that you're not uh, hurting the customer's expectations as well. You know, if, if all of a sudden you come into a project that's partway through and you say, hang on, we got to change the entire source control system, so all the development's going to stop this week while we uh, migrate over to this new source control system, uh, client's not really going to be pleased about having that happen. So you have to figure out a way to make it happen a little less seamlessly, or a little more seamlessly, and uh, less downtime occurring so that the client still gets something out of that week other than a technical solution. We need a volunteer, a bunch of volunteers for the night shift. Uh, who's going to get the beer? <laughs> keg of beer? Keg of beer? Because keg of beer and source control really go well together. Absolutely. In my Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I code better when I'm drunk. Nice. <laughs> uh, any particular source code systems you guys want to call out? Got some favorites? Uh, we're both big fans of, of Subversion. Um, I like it. One of the features that I love about it is I do a lot of work remotely. There isn't, um, surprisingly, not a whole lot of development work in the Bahamas, so I do a lot of work um, 
either over VPN or, you know, just on my own server. So right. I love Subversion for its remote capabilities and its, and its check-in strategy. It's, um, it, once you get used to it, and I'll admit that it was, uh, it did have a learning curve to get used to it. Um, its check-in strategy is a lot easier to manage once you, um, once you're familiar with the sort of the, edit merge scenario versus the lock file and, and then yeah, hunt I mean, down. Find there are out folks out there who vacation. say SVN is not a source control system because it doesn't have that, that I don't, I have to manage collisions rather than actually being able to protect work. Yeah. But um, if you, there's, it's part of a larger mindset change, a, a larger cultural change, because that is a big problem. If you're going to take a, a huge section of code and start working on it uh, for the next three days or, or week and, and then check in and on math. Um, you know, then you've got a big job ahead of you. But one of the, uh, one of the things we espouse is doing smaller check-ins um, when you've got a reasonable unit of work finished. And that could be something as um, simple as connecting up to a database. Once you can accurately connect up to a database, and, and we haven't even talked about unit tests yet, but once you have a unit test passing, for example, then check in your code. You don't necessarily have to see something on the screen for you to check in your code, but once you've got the ecosystem in place, the you know the continuous integration, your automated build, and your unit testing, um, your developers really get into a good rhythm. Um, one of the things Donald likes to say is, is the project gets, uh, you, you get into a rhythm and, and the continuous integration kind of acts as a metronome. Your developers are checking in often they're, um, and you're finding out really quickly how the project is working and you don't get those kind of collisions, those big collisions where you're having to merge in huge chunks of code. So how often are we talking about checking in here? Every day? I find for myself that I check in many, many times a day, um, really? depending on the amount of actual code that um, that's flowing for me, I may check in up to 15 or 20 times a day. But if you're working in a continuous integration mode, aren't you saying that every time I check in, it's going to do a build? Yes. Yeah, it will do a build. Um, and it's, there's a whole check-in dance that you want right. to do when you're checking in code in this style. And, the first things to do are um, make sure the code compiles on your machine by running that lo- that build locally. Then you get the latest version, do any merging that may have occurred, make sure that your build runs again on your local machine with everyone else's most recent checked-in code. And then you're, once that go- uh, is passing, all your unit tests are passing, it's compiling, then you check your code in. Now you have a, uh, a continuous integration server that runs the build again. And depending on how you have it set up, it may run the build with just the compile, it may run the compile and the uh, fast unit tests, and then it may also, after that, trigger off the slow unit tests or integration testing uh, as part of its process. Until that build goes green, usually after the unit testing, the fast tests are done, then you start working on your other stuff again. So yeah, I go through that process at, at least 10 times a day when I'm working on code. Yeah, the key there is that the automated build has to be fast. It's, it's got to be able to run, um, you know, within a couple of minutes. Um, and if it doesn't, then you have to tweak it, start looking at maybe breaking out some of the longer running processes into a, a separate build process that gets kicked off um, 
maybe when the the fast tests are run and they, those can be queued up and then once as Donald says once the fast tests have passed once the fast build is passed you can get on with your work and be reasonably confident that nothing is going to nothing is going to break but it, i mean it's an interesting goal to keep the build at 2 minutes doesn't that make it sort of indicative of the the one great project is a mistake then we've got to sort of break this into smaller projects so that each check in doesn't represent rebuilding the whole app the actual compiling of the code doesn't take all that long i found uh project that I was on recently had uh, hundreds of thousands of lines of code and thousands of uh, C-sharp files and many, many projects inside the Visual Studio IDE. And when we compiled it from the command line using something like Nant, uh, it was running the compile portion of it in a matter of 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, it, the compiling's fast. It's where do you draw the line on your unit testing to keep it under that two, three-minute kind of threshold? That's why you start splitting your tests out into fast and slow tests. We're really talking about efficiency here. And Donald, I noticed on your blog you recently read The Toyota Way. Can you tell us a, a little bit about what you learned from that book? It, uh, one of the big things from The Toyota Way that I got was uh, you know, a little different than what we're talking about, but it was uh, the continuously learning and setting up your environment and your team so that people are always learning uh, what they're doing. Uh, if you are finding that your build is running slow and developers can start considering it uh, friction, so they're, they're not running it as often as they may usually do. So it's so slow, it's taking 10 minutes for me to run my thing, so I'm dropping down from 15 check-ins a day to three just because I don't want to have to sit and wait for 10 minutes to run my build script. I should learn from that, figure out a way to solve that problem. You know, it's the Toyota way, you stop the line and... You figure out how to solve that problem, get a solution in place, and then the line carries on again. So it's sort of like all hands on deck to solve that problem. It might not be all hands on deck. It might be just well, something focus. where you say, you know what, I'm stopping my stuff. If it's just resolving a build uh, speed error, you might just say, I'm stopping my stuff. I'm going to speed the build up for the developers. Everyone else continues on until you've proven that you've solved that problem. You know, you've rewritten the build script maybe locally. Um, you've partitioned off tests, something like that. You've tested it locally. You know it all works. You've verified it. Now you check that back into source control. Then when everyone goes and gets the latest version the next time, they have the new build script and they're back up and they're running faster. So you've really only stopped the line on your side of things. You haven't stopped the line across the board on the project. Well, that just seems like common sense to me too. But, it, you know, it's an interesting idea of um, the rocket scientists call it go fever. They keep writing code, you know, don't get distracted just because that's broken. Keep going rather than this mentality of no, no, it's worth stopping and making sure we get this right because writing more code makes it worse, not better. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. The, the farther you um, leave from a, a problem you've created, the harder it is to solve that problem. Hey, this is Carl just taking a minute with a message from our friends at Telerik. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 AJAX applications with Web 1.0 components? That's right, you just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components. And that's exactly what Telerik has done. Their RAD Controls for ASP.NET AJAX suite is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET AJAX, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. 
Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET AJAX API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple properties, you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET AJAX loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. So visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET AJAX right now and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So I'm looking at these sort of three things, source co- source control, continuous integration, and automated testing. It's a group then that is the things you must have in place before you're even ready to start writing code again. I mean, would you think that if I'm moving into an existing app, I've got to go through all those uh, the existing code and figure out how to test it properly? Maybe we just need to talk about testing more right now. So what kind of that's, tests are we talking about? That's uh, an interesting um thing to talk about for from the perspective of a brownfield application because there's a good chance you've got this big uh, monolith um, that hasn't been tested or hasn't been tested um, adequately or the tests are just plain wrong you know maybe the we've been on I've been on at least one project where there was a unit test project but it had been removed from the solution just because you know they the test kept failing so they didn't want to stop and fix it but when you're dealing with a brownfield application, um, you know, do what do you do? Do you add in the unit test project and then retrofit a bunch of unit tests onto the existing code? Um, you know, you could do that. I, I don't know if there's a lot of value in there um, because you essentially got an application that works reasonably well. Like, um, you know, I'm sure there are bugs in there, but um, we find that if you want to add in a unit test project to a brownfield application, you'll get more bang for your buck if you start doing the unit tests going forward. You know, somebody's logged a bug that you can't add in a last name greater than 12 characters. Well, you write in a unit test to expose that bug, um, then you fix it and go on forward, and your project kind of evolves there based on the unit test. Or if you've if you've changed any existing code, you probably want to write a unit test for that. Yeah, basically, you don't write any new code or change any existing code without having unit tests in place. But having to, you know, write a unit test to verify that you know you can put in a name of fifteen characters. Um, there's, I, I don't think there's a lot of value in um, going back and adding them. Unless you're actively changing the code. Well, and in theory, the code works, right? So you don't need to go instrument it now or, or put tests around it. I, I could see I would end up putting tests on it anytime I needed to go in and touch a piece of the old right. code that I would then add some tests to it. Comes back to being efficient, really. Yeah, the, the gain that you get from um, backfilling tests on working code is pretty minimal unless you have to modify it. Yeah, you can start with the assumption that the existing code works. If it doesn't, then we the the test the users or somebody is going to log a bug against it, right? And then in that point, then you then the unit testing comes in. But it's part of a again a culture shift. You know, perhaps your project hasn't had unit tests up until this point. Well, now you have to get the development team um, into that new mode where you are writing unit tests where you are making it part of your continuous integration cycle, and that is often a 
um, a harder job than it is to actually, you know, write the unit tests themselves. And now normally these unit tests, are they running on the dev's machine or are they part of the continuous integration cycle? They are uh, both. The um, One of the things I try to do uh, um, and I'm able to do most of the time is that the automated build process that compiles the code and that runs the unit tests, the one that I run on my dev machine is the exact same one that's run on the build server. So it's the same NAND script, same MS build script. Um, so, you know, that gives you that much more confidence that when you do check in your code, you're running the same process that the, the continuous integration server is running, that you're 99% confident that it's going to be um, successful when it completes. And if it isn't, then it's very likely an environment change, and then that's something that, you know, you have to kind of work into your testing progress pro- process just like any other bug. I guess the expectations with a developer, once it's compiled properly on your machine, and it, Steve Forte's got a great line because he works so internationally. He says, I know how to say it works fine on my machine in 10 languages. Because <laughs> that's sort of the standard thing that developers always say, that then now I'll push it up to the build server. It should work fine there. It's when it doesn't that sort of all hell breaks loose. Yeah, that's the time that you really got to figure out the reasons behind it, the difference in the two environments. You know, your your build server environment should be closely mirroring what you're, what's going to happen in production. So if there's some difference in development, one that I've recently run into is that our build server uh, is executing unit tests using a specific uh, domain account, and we're logged on locally under our own accounts on our machines, and the unit tests run and fail differently on each machine depending on which account. So now you've got an environment problem. You have to figure out how do I get around this so that I have confidence that my tests are running successfully all the time. It's all, all the tests are there for is to provide you with confidence in the quality of your code as well as provide you with uh, the ability to go and change the code without incurring any penalty uh, in the form of errors. I mean, that's strictly, that's, that's tests that are existing. I mean, if you're doing TDD, the tests are there to help you design the code as well. Well, and, if, and it sounds like you guys aren't necessarily advocating any one model here uh, in terms of doing TDD versus other development methodologies. Does it really matter? It doesn't matter specifically. Now, Donald and I are both fans of TDD. Um, we've tried to be careful not to say you have to do it. Um, but the when we get down to the actual implementation, it's more the um, combination of as you said before, con- continuous integration, unit tests, uh, and source control. And um, I haven't read the latest chapter that Donald did, but on defect tracking as well. Have you guys ever seen that uh, the experience where you, uh, you you pick up the application, you, your guys look at it for a while, or maybe you look at it for a while, you try to understand it, you come to the conclusion that it needs to be refactored and reworked and maybe even re-architected a little bit. And you go down that rabbit hole and you come to some sort of brick wall. And then I'm not saying you wasted all that time, but but is there such a thing as over-refactoring or over-architecting or over-re-architecting maybe? I think that there is. And it's one of those things where you have to tread lightly and you have to if you're coming into the project new, you have to uh, feel out the ground and see what exactly is going on. Your first instinct as to why this code is a problem might very well be wrong, you know, because you don't understand the bigger picture. You don't see the pain points that the development team has been seeing 
over the last year in their and changing code and, and fixing bugs, things like that. You don't necessarily see the overall architecture picture because you don't have that. Lots of times on projects, you don't have that nice big diagram available right. to you that says here is the architecture physically or logically or anything like that. But I would also say that those diagrams are the things don't actually capture the key thing, which is why that decision was made that way. That's often only existing in people's minds. They, they, and even then they often forget, why did we decide this? I just don't see good capture mechanisms for that. There's, there's an article that uh, Joel Spolsky wrote, um, oh gosh, it's a bunch of years now. It was, um, it was on the, um, it, it was called Things You Should Never Do or something like that. It was on the um, Netscape, you know, the new Netscape, how they went from 4.7 to 6.0 and the fact that they scrapped it from, they started over from scratch and scrapped the entire code base. Right. And, you know, look what happened to Netscape. Well, you know, you look into that code and, yeah, you don't understand it, but maybe it's there to to fix some bug that happens with this obscure printer that, that you didn't think about when you first wrote the test or first wrote the application. Well, and the Netscape blender is like legend that they literally said, okay, we're going to throw away Netscape 4. We're going to skip five, build six, and three years they put into it. And the sad part is that six sucked. When it actually came out, it wasn't as good a browser as four was. That's like the developer's dream. I get a chance to start over. And we never, we always talk about how wonderful that would be, but I have yet to find an example where that actually turned out to be a wonderful thing. Well, you know, that there is always the trade-off between features and performance that seems to get neglected when, you know, in, in some large projects. And you, you could say that's what happened in Netscape. They, you know, they wanted to do too much and they weren't as focused on what, you know, the core, the core experience of the product was. Well, it's any, any developer's natural inclination is, you know, what is this crap here? I could rewrite this a whole lot better in, right. in half the time, right? And because they don't want to take the time to understand it. Yeah, Exactly. You know, it, it wasn't mine. The other problem potentially, too, is that what originally was written there is not understandable. And that, that's something that uh, when we get into the code portion of our book that we're going to talk to talk to a lot is making your code coherent, you know, writing with ease of understanding for the next developer. You know, always think that the next developer is a psycho with an axe that knows where you live. And <laughs> use that going forward. <laughs> wow, that, that actually... Psycho with an axing strikes very close to home for me these days. But, yeah, I mean, the idea being that somebody will read this. It may not be you, or it might be you. I mean, a number of times I've read my own code and gone, what was I thinking when I wrote this? This is what comments is all about, right? Well, even beyond comments is writing the code so that it reads well without a comment. Um, one of the things I use on my current project with the team I'm with is uh, if you've written a comment in there, you probably haven't written your code in a understandable way. I mean, there are ex- are exceptions to that where you need to have comments because there's some something that's happening that that needs explaining. But you know, if you're just writing comments in there to explain why you're looping over something, maybe the you should have that split out into another method or its own class or something like that, and have that named really well so that it's understandable. Oh, I'm calling off to this method, and it's you know, it's looping over the uh, customers and retrieving the one with the highest uh, invoice amount. Right. 
So we've sort of talked about the front side of development, source control, uh, continuous integration, testing, and so forth to get to the point of the build. Um, where do we go from here? Bug tracking? One of the big areas that I think is um, uh, quite important after you've got the, an understanding and maybe some fixes in place for the environment and the ecosystem is uh, actually getting a, an understanding of the code and what its current state is. And, you know, that kind of falls under metricing in a way. So maybe you're using static analysis tools, maybe you're using uh, uh, just walkthroughs of the code, um, things like that. And bug track is also one of the ways to do it. But you just got to go and get this feeling of where are the, the pain points within our code base and what can we do in that area to try and resolve the pain. In that respect, bug tracking becomes kind of a code metric similar to code coverage or, or say, um, coupling or, or cohesion and things like that. You're using it not only to actually make the application better, but you're also um, using it as a refactoring tool to find out which areas of the code uh, need to be looked at. I often worry about using bugs as metrics for performance because it, it's, it's almost like it puts pressure on people not to write bugs that more bugs are bad? I don't think looking at the bugs as a uh, performance metric is, uh, like a developer performance metric is necessarily what you want to do. You want to look at them um, from a point of view of, look, uh, we've got, over time, since the start of this project, we've got X number of defects in the inventory module. Well, why is it so high in comparison to all the other ones? And then, and then just use it as a starting point of saying, hey, here's a direction you should probably go. Poke your head down the rabbit hole, see what's there, decide if it's something that you should be looking at or not, and then go from there. I just, I just get a chill, like the next question out of the manager's mind is, who wrote that? Well, you see, the thing is not to look at individual defects or individual model, uh, the modules. Uh, it's, it's more to look at it overall. And this is something I don't think that the managers need to be involved in necessarily. Um, in some cases, you may want to have them, but overall, the initial first look is probably to be done by the developers themselves, come up with a list of where our pain points are, and then figure out plans of attack, and then present that to the, uh, to the manager if it's even required to do that. Or maybe you just go in and you say, you know what, we're going to, as we're working on this new feature in inventory, we're going to start decoupling the code or something like that. So uh, what about new features going in as bugs? Do you, do you have an opinion there? Mm, I, uh, I don't have yeah, uh, an opinion. Uh, no, I, I don't uh, you mean works. say, well, we, we haven't done the customer module, so that's a big bug. We need to work on it. Yeah, and it's almost unfair to call them bugs. And, and I know you guys also refer to them as defects, which I guess are different. Work items. That's the team system. Work items or, or is a little issues. more agnostic. It's all nom- Personally, to me, that's a nomenclature. It's something you need to do. And, and um, as the software developer, um, you're not really in the position to determine if that's more important than fixing the fact that you can't print or something like that. Um, it's the customer's call to make some, to make that. As to what the priority is on that. Yeah. yeah and, and I think one of the mistakes that a lot of projects have made that I've seen where I've considered it to be significant brownfield projects is uh, they treat defects as another stream of work altogether. Uh, so that 
you know, you have your, you're working all the time on new features, developers do new features, and then towards the end of the release cycle, everyone dives onto defects now and starts working on them. It's a lot more effective if you treat a defect like any other or bug like any other uh, work item that you have coming in. Absolutely. You prioritize them, usually with the help of the client, and figure out which, what things are we going to do in what order. One day you may be working on new features, the next day it might be defects, and then you might be back to new features, but just let the priority, the client's priority, drive um, the work items, which are including the defects. Are you a fan of Scrum? Do you allow your clients in your Scrum meeting, or do you just get their feedback before the meetings? I would love to have my clients in my meetings. Um, I think it's, the, it's really the best way to go, is to have them there. They have so much knowledge about priorities as well as details of the features that may be worked on and brought up in the meeting that they have to be there to answer those questions if required. Well, and certainly yeah. their ability to set priority for you too. We had that at our, uh, at, at my last contract where the client would religiously show up at, at every meeting. Um, and yeah, we still had cases where priorities would change, you know, it's kind of mid sprint and you have to plan for it. But um, in, in the midst of it, he's, the one that's basically dictating what we're going to do, and and that's as it should be. I mean, what do we know about the software we're writing? It was it's for some sort of heat trace calculator thing, and and you know, I by the time I got there, I didn't even know what the calculations were that they had to do. I guess it depends on the client too, right? I mean, and and who at at the client, you know, the person with the knowledge of what this thing has to do. I've been in software situations where the client had no idea what they wanted. They just knew that the work that they had to do, but couldn't articulate that in terms of the software itself. Well, you don't necessarily have that in a brownfield application. Usually the client, by the time you know you start in on the project, they've got some pretty strong opinions on what the application, well, at least what it shouldn't do. Um, but um, by by the time... You know, you get on the project, and, and assuming it's already been um, shipped out to the users, and it may not be, but in any case, you usually have a client that's seen some version of it and, and knows what shouldn't be done, what you know, what you should change, at least. All right. One more area. You know, the funny thing is I think we spent this entire hour just talking about the ecosystem. And we've never talked about code. I don't know that we're going to get there as we're running out of time because one other area I really want to dig into on the ecosystem would be uh, metrics, static analysis, dynamic analysis. Like, where where does this fit into the equation? We hear the terms, but I don't think a lot of people really understand what it means. Well, uh, code metrics are, you're talking about things like um, class coupling, you know, code coverage. Um, There's another one that's cyclomatic complexity, things like that. You know, we got three CCs in there. The, awesome, the, but you better define them. You can't just leave it like that. So, cyclomatic complexity. Cyclomatic complexity. Um, oh gosh, you're going to make. I me know. I know. <laughs> say this right off the top of my head. It's um, you know how deep. It's kind of how deep your 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 loops go. Like if you have how um, many paths uh, of logic your code could actually take. Yeah, I'm, I'm simplifying there. You know, if you have a a for loop that loops ten times, and you got a code complexity of of ten there. Um, and then in there, if you have like an if, if then else, then you've got, you've automatically doubled it, right, to, to 20. Now, um, the code metrics are a very, I think, uh, invaluable 
there are a lot of there's a school of thought that says you should you know try to put it into your automated build you should run code metrics every time you check in the code and if your cyclomatic complexity is greater than four then that fails the build or something like that interesting um, but my what I think personally and something that's worked reasonably well for me is that you shouldn't sort of force code uh, code metrics to break or or you know pass a build but they should still be used like um, there may be a very good reason why your cyclomatic complexity is is 10 for example or your depth of inheritance that's another one how deep does your inheritance tree go I mean you derive something from um, you know system web UI user control you've automatically got a depth of inheritance or of a uh, five right there for example right so and these are all just ways of measuring just how complicated this code is or how hard it is yeah, to test or it's, debug? It's good for pinpointing areas. Like if you're using uh, like defect tracking as one method, as Donald was talking about earlier, you um, use it to pinpoint an area that needs some, some, you know, some TLC. Well, maybe you've got all of your application is looking okay, but this one area has got an immense number... Uh, amount of coupling to it. You know, that's something that, and you're getting a lot of bugs in that area. It's sort of a combination of things that you make a value judgment on at a regular basis. Every couple of weeks, for example, you you kind of step back and say, um, is there something that is causing it? We're getting a lot of defects in this area of the code. Should we take a look at the metrics? Maybe there's too much uh, coupling going on there. We need to tease apart the dependencies, for example. Or maybe, uh, you know, code coverage is one that's often used in um, in your automated build to say, I want to fail the build if our unit test coverage drops below 80%. Right. And so when we talk about code coverage, you're talking about every aspect of the source code being tested. Yeah. How much of, of my code is, is covered by unit tests? And I've personally been burned by having that in the um, automated build um, because we had an application that was, you know, 71% coverage. Every time we would raise, uh, our code coverage would raise up to another 5%, we would raise the threshold for it. So it was 71% covered, and we had the threshold like 70% coverage. And what happened was we had this whole set of modules that was no longer needed anymore. You know, this whole section of code but it was 100% covered by tests. So we take that out, and all of a sudden our code coverage drops by 69%, and the development team's like, well, how are we... I need to write all these unit tests now to get our code coverage up right. to 70%. And that's... No, that's not what you need to do. You need to, in that case, drop your threshold. You you don't retrofit tests just for the sake of increasing your code coverage. Right. I mean, I guess it's got to be rational, and it's interesting to think we had this great code coverage on these modules we weren't using, so we were distorting that number high, actually. Yeah. So uh, how do we figure out what our code coverage is? Are there tools that do that for us? Yeah, there's um, NCover is a tool that still has a free version, although uh, version 2 and higher, I believe, is, is commercial. Um, I, I, I think there's code coverage tools in, in Visual Studio somewhere. Donald, do you know? Yeah, inside, uh, 
I think it's inside the standard uh, edition of Visual Studio with 2008. You can get uh, unit testing and code coverage uh, as part of your part of the metrics it will provide. Um, so that, that those are the two most common ways to do it in .NET code right now, or through NCover and Visual Studio. Now, Visual Studio, you have to be using the uh, Microsoft testing framework to be right. able to use it. Um, or at least that's my understanding at this point. And I'm not sure what so the need... story is there with automating that as well. I've, I've never tried to automate it. Automating the testing or automating the code coverage calculations? Automating the, the code coverage, if, if that can be done. Visual Studio also has some other um, code metrics that, that you can run as well. But um, for code coverage and cover, I would venture to say is the de facto standard. For other metrics, um, Patrick Smasha has a tool called Endepend, um, which is also commercial. And I, I haven't dove into it um, in a great amount, but doesn't I've team heard system some very also, good things about it. Doesn't Team System also have some things built in? I'm sorry? Team System does have some stuff built in. It, it's um, pretty limited right now as to the type of static analysis that you can get out of it. Um, but there are things in there like uh, inheritance depth and... Uh, I believe cohesion or coupling, one of the two is in it as well. And then they have this maintainability index as well that's uh, in their list. So this is all about giving you a sense of how good of software you've built or how how difficult it is? I think it gives you the sense of of how easy it's going to be to maintain and to continue working on it down the road. Um, It's, uh, you know, good is such an arbitrary term that good to me means different than it does to you. And, uh, it's really hard to metric whether it's good, whether software is good or not. What you can say is whether it's going to have ease of code change, reversibility, um, the decoupling of code, allowing you to uh, do both of those things. So it's stuff like that that you can tell, I think, more so than an overall quality of code. They're using a standard uh, formula that was developed, I think, in the 70s sometimes, and it's um, it's, it seems pretty dated. I think it involves sort of like lines of code and, and number of comments. Um, I might be speaking untruths there, but it, when I looked at the formula at the time, um, it didn't, to me, indicate uh, a decent um, maintain, uh, a decent picture of how maintainable an application is. Guys, you know, we haven't even talked about the code side of this, and maybe you you guys would like to come back and do that. Would you like to? Yeah, I would love to. Um, when we have that section of the book written, we would probably have a better idea of that. That's kind of why I think why we focus more on the ecosystem. It's still fairly fresh in our minds. Excellent. I would love. We would love to have you back. And in, until then, uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. I, I, Thank you guys for having us. We'll be sure to check out your blogs. Absolutely. Yeah, I also want to mention, finally, I've got some um, some screencasts coming up on uh, dimecast.net on Brownfield, so it'll give you a better idea of the practical implementations of some of the stuff we're talking about. All right, excellent. And until then, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com.
Franklinsnet.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 